Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. I think I became more aware of how we really are part of nature. We are immersed in it. And once we start taking care of nature and like taking time to see what she gives to us, then like we are more in a partnership. And I think that's what people still want right now is that connection again. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Very good. The fall equinox is just about here. It actually happens at 2.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time tomorrow morning for us, September 23rd. So that means for West Coast listeners, it actually happens at 11.50 p.m. today. So happy fall equinox, everyone, or soon to be. I wonder how many of our listeners out there accepted the challenge to wait until the fall equinox to have their first pumpkin spice latte. Yeah, it would be interesting to note. I have to say that technically I did not because someone got one for me without <laughs> me requesting it, but I did drink it. So sorry, everyone. <laughs> okay. So I will admit that I've already had one because I was double checking the recipe right, that, right, right, right. that we posted <laughs> for the Slow Living Through the Seasons podcast. And I just wanted to make sure it didn't need any adjustment. <laughs> yeah, of course. So while we both have very good excuses, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of funny. But I will say that the recipe is delicious and it did not need any tweaking. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so fun. So the recipe that my mom is referring to, which you can now have because it's fall. Just kidding. We're like the <laughs> fall police over here. Yeah. Just kidding. Just kidding. You can find it on our blog. And it was also originally posted in the Almanac, which is our online community platform where we share all kinds of stuff like this. And we will post recipes and people will post photos of them making it and adjustments and all of that. And the Almanac is open now for enrollment. So we had it closed over the summer. We are now opening the doors again. And you can find the link in the show notes and on our website. It's really fun. We've been doing it for about three years now, I guess. And we've really grown some true 
friendships out of it. And we meet every month. And it's just been so fun to, to get to know this group of people that people are come and go, but it's a pretty steady constant of just encouragement and inspiration. And it's really fun. So if you enjoy this podcast and you want to get more time with Lady Farmer Friends, the Almanac is a great way to do that. We'd love to see you there. Yes. And I'll say, even though we've never actually met a lot of these people in person, I, I feel oh, like they're great true. friends. I forget that. <laughs> yeah. And we've just grown to know them so well. You know who you are. You know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Emma, you had this cute Instagram post the other day about your figs. I wanted to ask you about your figs. How are they? They look delicious. They looked really ripe and perfect. And that's so funny. Tell them about that, how you live in the city and you have this incredible victory. Yeah. Well, I can hardly take credit for it. I really can't. It just sort of was there. I think it was even there when we moved in originally 15 years ago, right? I mean, or did you put it there? No, no, I did not plant it. It was just there. Yeah. If anything, I guess I can take credit. I yelled at the neighbor's tree guy who tried to cut it down once. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. I've tried to preserve it. And between, you know, the houses are really close together because it's, it's the city. So it's kind of, it's like a little townhouse situation. And I've heard you say before that the fig likes that. Yeah. It likes being protected from the wind. I know that because I struggle with my fig trees out here that are out in the garden and the winter, they die all the way back and they're not dead, but it takes them all summer to come back. So sometimes they don't have time to come back in time to, for the figs to really ripen. So for some reason, that situation in the city there between those two houses that gets just enough sun and protects it from the wind has created this amazing thing. And didn't it get seriously cut back a couple of years ago? It did. It was when we had to take out some other stuff kind of in that area and it did get cut back, but I think that actually helped it even more sort of exploded after that. And the top part of it, you know, that we can really reach because it's hard to explain, but basically the ground, it's like an elevated, our front door, you know, the city, it's weird. The tree <laughs> starts growing down probably about a story. And so we're at the top of it. So I can get the ones at the top. Maybe that also kind of helps the situation. You know, I can get to the top easier than I can to the ones below which is interesting. Yeah. It's almost like a kind of a second story situation there because it grows from the basement level up to your porch and that's where you're accessing it. So anyway, it's just so cool that in the middle of the city, you have these beautiful, fresh figs. I know. And I have to tell you, I said this in my post every year, I think about like doing something with them, but they really don't make it very far from when I pick it to the kitchen. They just normally go straight into my mouth. So <laughs> it'd be fun to like do something with them, but it's just like a little candy on a tree. It's so fun. Isn't it fun to have something that you've grown yourself or that has grown itself, I should say, and it's just right there and you walk out your door and pick it. And I think that's a lot of what homesteading feels like to people, to create your own thing. Although having a fig tree might not be what most people think of as actually homesteading. And we talk about it so much on here. We think homesteading can mean anything from living off grid somewhere and growing all of your own food to just choosing a handful of things or even one thing that you want to make for yourself rather than getting it through some industrial complex. Yeah. And I would say included in that is even just noticing what's already around you and taking advantage of it. Well, not, you know, taking advantage without a spirit of reciprocity. 
<laughs> but just take, you know, noticing what's around you and having a relationship with it, I guess I should say. Yes. And embracing it. Like for instance, like a lot of people probably have, have some kind of berries growing wild around them, you know, black raspberries or blackberries or, or chickweed in your yard. Oh, so many things. And like I said, well, it, it might not feel like the idea of homesteading that a lot of us kind of have in our head. You know, all of these little things help you slow down and make fewer purchases and create less waste. And even if you're just doing one or two things, and it's also fun. And that brings us to today's episode. Emma, do you want to introduce our two guests? Totally. Yes. These women are so inspiring. Today, we're talking to Michelle Brune and Stephanie Thoreau. They are the co-authors of the book, Small Scale Homesteading, a sustainable guide to gardening, keeping chickens, maple sugaring, preserving the harvest, and more. Michelle is the founder of Forks in the Dirt, which is an information hub for gardening and farm-to-table living. She helps people grow their own, know their farmer, and cook real food year-round. Stephanie is a certified master food preserver, a food preservation instructor, a master gardener volunteer, a freelance writer, and the author of three best-selling cookbooks, which you will find linked in the show notes. This book is chock full of great information on gardening, preserving the harvest, chickens, maple sugaring, and DIY projects and recipes for the home and garden. We'll say it again. Homesteading is not about where you live. It's a way of living closer to nature, wherever you are. And as you'll hear in this conversation, whatever your situation, you can do a whole lot more than you probably think. So we know you'll enjoy listening to these two fun lady farmers, Michelle Brune and Stephanie Thoreau, co-authors of Small Scale Homesteading. Stephanie Thoreau. I'm the author of three food preservation cookbooks and co-author of Small Scale Homesteading with Michelle. I am a master food preserver and master gardener, and I teach food preservation classes here in Minnesota. My journey started only about 20 years ago. I grew up in Minneapolis and didn't do any gardening or cooking from scratch or anything growing up. And then about 20 years ago, I started canning. And then about 15 years ago, we got our home and it had some gardens already here. So then I started gardening and and it's just grown over time. And I'm still close to Minneapolis, but I'm in a suburb in the first ring of Minneapolis now. And we don't have tons of space, but we still do a lot here in our little suburban home, which we'll get to a little bit later. Yeah. Good job, right. Stephanie. That was like succinct and fulfilling <laughs> and everything. I'm Michelle Brun. I run Forks in the Dirt, which is kind of an online local food information hub. And I write lots of articles and excitedly just wrote this wonderful book, Small Scale Homesteading with Stephanie. I run winter farmers markets and I garden. I am a master gardener here in the like outer rings of the Twin Cities. Yeah, I'm sure there's lots of other stuff. So it's fun. I am always busy. Lots of like forks in the dirt, lots of irons in the fire. I'm always doing a couple different things and it's been really fun to do more of them now with Stephanie. That's awesome. And how did you guys find each other? How did this partnership begin? Well, we met on Instagram, actually. We always say like six, seven or eight years ago. We're not sure. We met a long time ago on Instagram and we connected over the things that we were both doing here in Minnesota. And then we met in person five or so years ago because Michelle invited me to teach a fermentation class at her winter market. And so that was the first time we met in person. Cool. 
And then you decided to like write books together? Stephanie was like, hey, we were talking about something completely different. We were actually talking about a rhubarb shrub recipe. She had done this recipe for rhubarb shrub and I wanted to write a blog about it after I made some drinks for my book club ladies with this rhubarb shrub base. And they were like, you have to write a blog about it. And I said, well, I better talk to Stephanie, who has this amazing recipe that I use before I share her recipe. So in that process, talking about things and getting deeper into some other stuff, because once we start talking, we just keep going on ideas. She said, hey, I have this idea that I presented to my current publisher, editor, would you be interested in working together? And I really, truly thought about it for like a hot minute and was like, yes, this is exactly what we should be doing. Let's do this. And so, yeah, Small Scale Homesteading was born. Super cool. That's so fun. Oh, I want that rhubarb shrub now. Yeah, that would be great. When did the book come out and how long was it in the writing? And just tell us a little bit about that journey of doing that together. It's a blur. It was over the pandemic time. So we worked on it for a couple of years, I want to say, or almost a couple of years. And it came out in March and working together with someone you've only met in person like one or two times was a big risk, but we did really well together because we didn't know each other like so intimately as like, best friends hang out all the time or something. We have like this great boundary and respect for each other. (laughs) Kind of sounds bad, but you know what I mean, right? And you don't have a friendship at risk. Like you don't, you have nothing to lose. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. She has strengths where I have weaknesses. And And vice versa. Yeah, for sure. Stephanie has awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It worked out really well, I think. And it's been fun because like I said, I've written these other books and then I try and do the promotion alone and it's super fun doing it with someone else. And then, yeah, it's a good balance. So the book is Small Scale Homesteading. Tell us, who is it for? And what would you say is the essence of the book? I mean, you know, the title may or may not say it all. So I'll give you a chance to talk about it. Okay, so the book, Small Scale Homesteading, explains all the things that Michelle and I actually do from our suburban homes and how we do it. We talk about how we tap our silver maple trees. We each have one large silver maple tree that we tap and we make enough maple syrup to last the entire year just with the one. And there's different trees you can tap for syrup too. So we go into that and we go into the process of turning the sap into syrup and how to preserve it. We talk about having small backyard flocks of chickens. We can only have chickens for eggs here where we live. Like I said, I'm in Richfield. She's about 35 minutes across town in a different city. They can have more chickens there. So it's just things vary the way that she does one thing. I do it differently, but we have the same outcome. And so we share both of the perspectives throughout the book as well. So backyard chicken keeping, maple tapping, big chapter on gardening. Michelle talks about how to push the seasons as well with the gardening, which is really cool. And then we have food preservation chapter. We share information about some of our favorite recipes. And then also we have a healthy home DIY chapter that has like lotion recipes, soap recipes, how to make homemade candles and and stuff like that. So it's all everything that we actually are doing and how we do it. Yeah. And I would say it's for maybe more of a beginner than like somebody who's been in it for years and years. But there's also some really fun feedback, especially so far on the gardening and chicken chapters that we've gotten where people are like, I've been doing this for years and I learned something. So we kind of thought it was more of like an introduction, high level overview on getting people started, because I think there's like this yearning really for people to like have this reconnection and do something wherever they're at. And I think that that's what this book answers so well is like, okay, I have this itch. I know I want to eat some more of my 
own like locally grown food. If it's not even from me, it's from a farmer close by. So how do I make those first steps? And I think that that's kind of where this book enters. And then there's enough information on there to really chew on it a little bit more, but it's it's really fun. So it's mostly, I would say, for beginners, but there's been some really fun feedback too on people who are enjoying a little bit of the deeper stuff because I'm a official garden nerd. Like I love soil science. I love composting. I love how it all works together. And to be able to see after, you know, a dozen or so years of really doing that on our small little suburban space, how the soil is changing and like feeding us better. And I would say chickens are an integral part of that, too, because they really feed the soil so well, too. Can you tell us a little bit about your space? What is your space? I know you gave an overview, but like how much, I guess, square footage do you have? And is it all in the ground? Is it containers, raised beds? I guess for both of you, like describe your situation. Well, I have like 0.15 acre with my house, my driveway, and my garage. So I have a front yard and a backyard to play with, but I still feel like I have a lot of space because I think I use it well. Like I still envision all these other spaces I can fill up (laughs) with garden beds. In the front yard, I have raised garden beds because I want to keep it looking neat and tidy for the neighbors that may not want me to grow in the front. Although I haven't had any negative feedback about that. People are super nice and will give me compliments as they walk by. And it started a lot of conversations and I've met new friends this way. So it's been great. We just added six more gardens in the front last year. Before that, I only had raspberries, which I don't recommend putting in your front yard. I put those raspberries in there 12 years ago when I didn't know what raspberries (laughs) would do. That was a mistake. Those (laughs) should have gone in the back. (laughs) And I had an herb garden out front. So that's all I had for 13 years. Anyway, and then in the backyard, we just kind of grow along the perimeter of our yard. And then behind the garage is a big space. So square footage wise, I'm not really sure. But we're still growing hundreds of pounds of food with what space we have. And then I have a, a chicken coop with four chickens and That provides us with more eggs than we can eat because my husband and daughter aren't big egg lovers. (laughs) They'll bake with them, but I'm the main egg egg eater. So I can um, pickle them or freeze them or share them with friends and neighbors and family. So how much room do your four chickens have? Are they in a little coop and or do they go out? How does that work? Yeah, well, we're supposed to be with them when they free range, but I've been really giving them a lot more freedom as long as I have the back door open and I can kind of see them. And when my gardens get to this stage, they stay out of them, which is kind of amazing. So I can trust them. So they have an eight by eight poultry pen. I have the coop inside there. So I have hard wear cloth around the edges. And I mean, we've had them for like three and a half years now. That's all. But it seems to be working out really well. I only had three chickens up until this year. But yeah, then they can free range all around the backyard. They've never tried to get away. (laughs) We've had some predators, but I think the way that we've set it up is pretty predator proof. We haven't had any casualties yet. And are you, is your full situation fenced in or in the back, I guess, at least? Yes, it is. What about you, Michelle? What is your setup? It sounds like you're a little more rural. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, exactly, Mary. We're a little further out. So we have just a little bit larger space, though. It's like 0.4 acres. It's or 0.43 or something. I don't even know. But our backyard is fully fenced in, and that's where the majority of the vegetable gardens are. But I do have a pretty large space. And Someday I'll figure out square footage of this stuff. I don't do numbers. I don't know. Everything is kind of like in relationship to something else, right? So we've got mostly berry bushes and then that's where I grow a lot of squash and pumpkins and stuff out front. I guess I'm not as worried about keeping it neat and tidy. (laughs) Like, it's beautiful, it's fine. There's a big space out front and then 
the back third of our yard is vegetable garden and chickens. So we kind of split up that back third of the yard. So I think it's like 20 by 50 feet is kind of the garden space back there. And I've got raised beds, I've got in-ground beds, kind of a mix of some old wooden beds and really new metal raised beds. So and some hugel culture beds back there too. And then I've got strawberries and stuff in the back. But I certainly cannot keep my chickens. I do not let them into the garden at all. But they perimeter, like they go around the perimeter of it to get all those bugs um, as best they can around the edges there. How do you have them in the edges and not get in? Well, yeah. So is it your garden? Yeah, my garden is completely fenced in separate from those chickens. So like for a small space, there's a ridiculous amount of fencing and gates. (laughs) But it's what we need to do. So we've got that kind of infrastructure there. So once we had that, that's been in. And I will say we had a horrible fox situation with our chickens. The like Mother's Day, I call it the Mother's Day massacre. (laughs) It was horrible. Try to like find (laughs) levity in it afterwards, right? It was horrible. So a fox got all six of our chickens that morning. And um, it was like the that May of like the pandemic, right? The Like everything was setting in. I was like, oh no, what am I going to do for, you know, eggs? And it was like, seriously, like, oh my gosh. So I ended up finding pullets and, you know, rebuilding the flock that way. But now we started fresh with some baby chicks two years ago. And halfway through last summer, they decided to start flying into the garden, like up and over the fence that had been perfectly fine for my other chickens. They never wanted to come in. I think speckled Sussex are a little bit more feisty and and interested in flying over things. So she led the way. But yeah, so now we have an extension on our fences (laughs) between, (laughs) between. So we have like regular, you know, garden fence. And then we have chicken wire, like just like two feet more of chicken wire because it's floppy. That's a, that is like a bonus. I would say keep it floppy if you're trying to keep chickens out of a garden, because if they have anything solid, they can land on, they will fly up to it land on it and then jump into your garden and decimate it in a, a hot minute. So it's so interesting because I've lived on a very rural space, a farm in Sweden, and it's very different feeling when you're doing things in suburbia. But it's so fun to be creative and to look at things. I would say vertical gardening is a huge part for both Stephanie and I. We use a lot of cattle panel because it's cheap and easy and fun to move around and try different things with. And we have a couple of cattle panel projects even in the book. We love it so much. Really quickly, you said a couple of things. For anyone who might not know, what is hugo culture? Hugo culture is just a way to use existing pieces of wood that are possibly partially rotting already on your property to create this amazing soil health. So it's a way to build carbon, but not crazy amounts of it. So it's kind of funny. There's a it's kind of a hot topic right now because people are saying you can't grow well with hugel culture because the the carbon will be sucked out of the soil while it's decomposing. And that's true if you've got like wood chips on the top level of soil that get worked into the soil. So that while that's decomposing, that can suck carbon out. But it's a beautiful way to actually slowly build soil health. You're you're welcoming in so many microorganisms. You're loading the bottom area so you can dig down a little bit if you want or just build right on top of the soil with like a seat mulching kind of a way. Another name for this variety of gardening is called lasagna gardening because you're layering things on top. So people have probably heard something about this. I love it as a way to use what's already on your property to the best use and build some really good soil. Cool. Yes. Yes. Going back to the chickens for a minute, Stephanie, you're so lucky you haven't had a 
a predator problem. We've had chickens for about 10 years and now for the first time we're without chickens because we recently had a massacre. It was while I was farm sitting. <laughs> it wasn't your fault. It was the last I... in the series though. And you know, I just happened to be there. We had gotten down, the flock had gotten down. The silver lining to this cloud is that now all the chickens are gone and we can start over because in times past when we've wanted to add to the flock, it's really hard to add in to an established flock. I mean, they don't get along. It's really, really rough. So now we're starting with a clean slate. So I'm excited about that. But to your point about the different kinds of chickens that will fly over some want. I've experimented with all, all different kinds of breeds. And it's true that some of them don't try it at all, but some of them will do it relentlessly. And I've done all these tricks with putting the wire over the fence and trying to stop them and, and any number of solutions. But the thing that worked the best, and what do you think about this, is the wing clipping. And if you just do a little bit at the end, they say it's just like clipping their nails. And the chickens don't flange or anything. They don't seem to notice. You just, you just clip a little bit off so that the they can't fly efficiently. Is Do you think that's mean? I've only done it a couple of times when I was desperate. <laughs> what do y'all think? No, I've never done that, but that's because I'm too like freaked out to do it. It do And I've read about it and I almost did it because we had speckled Sussex like two flocks ago. So I've been keeping chickens for well over 20 years. I've had 40 some chickens when I lived in Sweden. I've had like dozens when I lived in a different place here in Minnesota. And now I changed the ordinance in White Bear Lake. We used to not be able in my town here. We used to not be able to have chickens. And I fought really hard for it with city council. Um, there's a little blurb about that also actually in the book, because I think it's really empowering to be able to work with your local government and be like, this is what's happening in the world right now. And I also got it changed so that people could keep bees. You couldn't even keep bees. So anyway, so that led us me to like, we can officially have a certain number of chickens and I have a different certain number of chickens. We won't get into the details of that. Stephanie thinks I'm going to get like, <laughs> I'm going to get a knock on my door soon. No, I haven't clipped them, but I think that a lot of people do it and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Steph. I haven't clipped them either, but we had birds when I was growing up and my parents used to clip the bird wings so they wouldn't, They otherwise they'd fly up to the ceiling and it doesn't hurt at all. I mean keeps them safe. It hurts more to get mauled by a fox. <laughs> yes. Good point, Emma. And it, it's really, when I had the escapees, that was the best solution above and beyond all the, all the, the wire tricks and things that, that were a lot of work and they got over them anyway. They, they knew how to do it. Well, Stephanie, you mentioned that you didn't really do homesteading earlier in life and sort of what was your transition and how, why did you start doing this? And was there ever an, an aha moment? We love aha moments. Well, yeah. So I grew up with my grandparents and I don't know, my grandma garden, she always had beautiful flower gardens, but she never really invited me in. I didn't understand it at that point. I was like, why would you go through all this work to, to make your garden so beautiful? And then it dies every year and you do it again. I didn't get it. <laughs> and then same thing with the cooking. She didn't really invite me in. I remember peeling carrots or whatever. So I just, I never had real interest until I moved out on my own. And I was like, gosh, I don't know how to do anything. But then about 20 years ago, I wanted to learn how to can. I wanted a new hobby and I thought, well, I want to learn how to make pickles because I like Bloody Marys. I mean, it was so, that's a true story. I love I that. <laughs> but then I found somebody to teach me and we canned all weekend and we did pickles and beets and a couple different kinds of jam. And then I was obsessed. And so that sparked 
love fire and I canned and canned and canned for years. But I'd have to say the aha moment or, or phase of my life is after I had my daughter and I became aware of like all the harsh chemicals and the cleaning products and the unnecessary food additives and stuff. So then I just wanted to give her the best. And so then I started cooking from scratch and making my own lotions and bug repellent and stuff because even just 13 years ago they didn't have these like clean brands so accessible like they do now and then as I you know started making these things on my own I realized well this is super simple I can make it how I want and it's cost effective so I've just kept doing it and so yeah I didn't like seek out a path of this like homesteading lifestyle you know do it yourself <laughs> a homesteading life found you via yeah, Bloody Mary I love that yeah. <laughs> I still love Bloody Mary's it's amazing <laughs> I think of a Bloody Mary with a stick of celery. I don't know. There's pickles in there too, little cornichons. Oh, yeah. There's okay. everything. I, had, I, made, I made one with a doubled egg in it just Ooh. over 4th of July. You got to get the olives. Mm. I mean, pickled asparagus. You're talking about the meal in yeah. a glass. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> Tomato soup. That sounds so good. What about you, Michelle? Well, definitely different than how Stephanie kind of got into it. So I had parents who were, we had a lot of land. I was always immersed kind of in nature. And that was always just part of my life, I guess. But I kind of walked away from it. I was doing like the big, you know, important corporate job thinking that's what, what was going on. And then just working a ridiculous amount of hours. And then a whole bunch of like life circumstances just converged. And I quit my job and I was home. And then all of a sudden I had these babies and I took just a deep dive into growing my own food and figuring out how to make that work for my family and I, I guess. And I was, I've always written, uh, I used to be marketing and PR. So it was very, it was like one of those stressful kinds of jobs, but I missed interviewing people. So that's how I started interviewing farmers and other people doing really cool things with local food here around the Twin Cities. So that kind of morphed into Forks in the Dirt, the online company, and then being able to just grow more of my own food I was more of a, oh my gosh, now I have all this food that I grew. I better preserve it and make something out of it rather than, you know, Stephanie really started with her love of canning and then started growing more of her own food. I would say the aha moment, if I had one where I went from like loving growing food and gardening to being more of a homesteader was when I realized I had all these pole beans that went way past their prime and even past like, you know, a good selling bean stage. We took a vacation and I came back and it was like the first year I'd grown a massive amount of food. And I was like, oh no, this is all past its prime. What am I going to do? And I looked at it and I was like, huh, that kind of looks like a bean seed. Oh, I, I can save those now. So I'm going to let them dry on the vine. And I had then seeds for the next year. And that moment is where I found that like, I think I became more aware of how we really are part of nature we are immersed in it. And once we start taking care of nature and like taking time to see what she gives to us, then like we are more in a partnership. And I think that for me, the idea of homesteading is more about doing more with what you've got all around you rather than moving to 40 acres and living off grid. And I think that's what people so want right now is that connection again. So for me, it was bean seeds. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. 
Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. As someone who... I sometimes work in a way that's like, I don't know, how do you say it? I like procrastinate on a lot of things. I leave a lot of things to sit for a while. And I also, because the world we live in, feel like really bad about that a lot. But a lot of times it actually works out better for me. And I think that that's a perfect example because had you been more like, oh, I got to get these pole beans out and, you know, done the thing. I don't know. You might not ever like have had that. You know, you got to let things go to seed sometimes. (laughs) It's so true. One of you said earlier, you think there's a yearning out there for people. You really hit on it. And Emma and I had the same kind of revelation six, seven years ago that there was this yearning. People really, they don't exactly know how to articulate it. Like, what is it? You know, they get on Instagram and stuff and they think, oh, I need to sell everything and move out to the country and live really remotely and grow all my own food and all this thing. And they, you know, have this yearning to get back to the land, back to nature, live more immersed in nature. But what I think is so wonderful about what you two are doing, you demonstrate how, no, you don't have to do that. You can do it like what you just said. You just do it with what you have. You guys have normal size yards and look at what you do. This is what I want to tell everybody and what we are telling everybody that you can do so much with what you have. The vertical gardening thing, the raised beds, even the chicken. Oh my gosh, you guys are a really, really wonderful example of this. So it's great. And this yearning we're talking about, it's its a yearning that is really pervasive right now, I think. I think that sort of feeds into the next question I wanted to ask, which is about homesteading in general. And so we've talked a little bit about like the beginnings of homesteading on this podcast and homesteading as we understand it in, in this country and the history, it's complicated and it, there's a lot of stuff kind of wrapped up in it and it's very capital R romanticized and it's also is awesome. So all of those things, how do you think in your experience, particularly, I guess, as recent as since the pandemic has homesteading shifted, homesteading, I'm saying in air quotes, shifted. And what do you think about sort of the relationship between this like self-reliance and I can do everything on my own and off the grid and I don't need anyone versus a lot of the realities of homesteading actually really rely on community and inter interconnectedness. So anything you have to say about that, either one of you? Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. 
that was one of the main drivers, I think, of writing this book is making sure that people realize you can do so much wherever you're at, but you're going to need other people. And it's not air quotes. It is way more fun to do it with people. I mean, you're going to enjoy the process more. You're going to feel more supported the whole way along. And you're, it's going to be more sustainable for you and sustainable in a way that you're going to want to keep doing it. You're not going to get burnout because you're not going to stress yourself out about feeling like you have to do it all because your neighbor has bees. You have a maple tree, right? You can swap that stuff. You can do so many different things. What do you think, Stephanie? I, can, I know you've got so much to say, too. Yeah, I mean... Just in my lifetime, I'm thinking how much like, so like I said, I grew up in Minneapolis and how much Richfield has built out in the last 15 years, just Richfield, that first ring. And then beyond, you know, these suburbs past that, I mean, they're, they all offer so, so, so much stuff to the community that they live there. But before that, it was farmland. And so you did kind of have to be more self-reliant because maybe your neighbor's, you know, miles away and the nearest market is half hour, hour away or whatever. So you, you did benefit from become, being more self-reliant. But and nowadays, everything is instant. You know, I can turn on any show I want. I can turn on any song I want. I can have groceries delivered to my door. I can order anything and it will be here in 24 to 48 hours. It's crazy. Jobs that would take people all day long to do are now like automated and everything's just so quick. And I think people have that desire to do stuff. And like you said, with the pandemic, it gave them an opportunity and maybe even sped up their doing because foods were being sold out at the grocery store and people started thinking, oh my gosh, what do I do? I should start gardening. I should grow some things. I should start preserving some things, get some chickens, whatever. So it it allowed them the opportunity and then a purpose for doing these things maybe they had thought about over time. To answer your question, you know, so many people live in the cities or suburbs now. We don't have to be self-reliant. And how much work would that be? I don't personally want to be. I know a lot of people do, but I like the modern day conveniences that I have. I love gardening and, and having the chickens and all this. And then the things I don't want to do or can't do, I don't have to. And I can get help from others. Sounds pretty ideal. It's so true. It's like embrace where we are, embrace where we are as a society and take what works and what's good. Try to make the best decisions we can in terms of sustainability and care for the earth and so forth. And then just sort of make our way from there. I do have a question for each of you. Where do you source the things that you don't grow? For instance, maybe if you eat meat or dairy, where do you all get these things? We're so lucky. We have farmer's markets almost every day of the week all over the state. I mean, everywhere. And the St. Paul farmer's markets, which are the ones I go to, they have different locations, I think six days a week, year round, and it's all local. So that's where we go. And then Michelle, Michelle knows tons of farmers because she runs the market. <laughs> yeah, I am so lucky too to just have been able to build some really great relationships with some of my favorite farmers. I have somebody for my pork. I have someone who I love their chickens and it kind of goes from there. And then I have one of the crops that I can't grow enough of is sweet corn. It would take a lot of space for us to grow all the sweet corn we eat. I mean, I could try then like my kids wouldn't have anywhere to play in the backyard. Right. So it's like, also, I think that's a really important piece to this is like how you use the space you have has to work for you and your family. I could tear up the whole backyard, right? And make it all garden. 
but my kids would hate me. I would have no extra time to play with them. We would be like tied to it in a way that doesn't work for our family right now. And I think that that's something that ties into the sustainability piece too. You have to be really realistic on what you want to do and and how much you want to take on. I know there's books out there that say how to live self-sufficiently on a quarter acre. Well, I've read some of those books and they're amazing. And kudos to the people who do that, but that's not what I want my life to be like. Like I want to be able to take my kids out and go camping and not worry about everything. So we have great farmers. I think the Twin Cities is really lucky in that we are surrounded by farmland. And so like we're not, we don't have an ocean on one side or something where we really have a lot of farmers and great soil around us to be able to do that. But yeah, definitely get to know your farmers, talk to them at farmer's markets, ask them questions about how they grow food. They want to talk to you about it. They know so, so much and you will end up learning more and being able to garden better in your own space and then uh, have a better understanding of what goes into raising cattle or chickens or whatever. So we don't really buy a lot of red meat. My husband is a bow and arrow hunter. What am I trying to say? He's into archery. He goes out and he shoots either elk or deer. So we eat, they, my kids eat that. I actually, I think I got a tick because I can't, I can't eat red meat any longer. There's Lone Star Tick, it's called. So I was out West a long time ago backpacking. And so I haven't eaten red meat in like 25 years and I'm fine with it. I don't miss it at all, but it's kind of funny because my husband loves to hunt and him and my boys do that and I will have a bean burger or something like different. So it's fine. But I do eat, you know, fish and chicken and pork. So that's interesting about that allergy from the Lone Star Tick. And you said all those years ago, I just kind of recently started hearing about that in the last couple of years. And like my my cousins got it. A good friend of Emma's got it. And I guess it's getting more and more common. And I see those Lone Star Ticks, you know, we have ticks around and, you know, I always look at the the tick when I pick one off the dog or whatever. And, and I see those ticks. And so it just, I don't know. I know. It's like a testament to how much climate chaos is changing our world, I think, too, because they didn't used to be as prevalent as they are. And it's pretty interesting. But that's like not a horrible thing to not be able to eat red meat, I think. So I don't know. <laughs> there are worse. There well, are worse things. Some people it goes away. Apparently it hasn't with you or you haven't tested it. I haven't wanted to test it in like probably 10 years. I think 10 years ago, I had a, a sandwich where there was pastrami on it. And one piece of pastrami made me say, nope. Well, what do you guys buy at the grocery store? Just curious when you do have groceries delivered, like what are what are kind of the things that you just really can't get that you need? We get grass fed milk every week. I get grass fed meat if I need it between the market runs. You know, some vegetables and fruit in the winter, especially if I don't have them. But yeah, I mean, whatever. Always grass-fed milk and, and usually some hamburger, grass-fed hamburger. <laughs> Those are staples. Where do you think this small-scale homesteading can contribute to like lower waste practices in, in our food, the food production, our food consumption, preservation? Stephanie, you can probably speak to this because you're master fermenter. If you know how to 
preserve the food, you will not waste it. I mean, my aunt had a garden for years and years and years and she would grow it. And I think she just liked growing stuff because she would never eat it. It was going to waste. So I'd go over there and I'd see all this stuff over ripening. And if you know how to use these different methods of food preservation, then you can have it well into the winter. You know, fresh food, freezing food is a great option if you don't want to get into the hot pots of canning or pressure canning. And uh, freezing keeps the nutrients like way up there. Texture and the flavor is still really good if you don't want to get into softening the food by canning it. Yeah, so it definitely helps avoid food waste. Mom, do you mean food waste or plastic waste? Well, I was really going after both, you know, food waste because you can preserve all these things, but then just the waste from buying things in the store. So, you know, growing, besides all the benefits of growing your own food and eating, eating locally and eating from farmer's markets, we're really going a big way towards reducing just, really you know, just landfill packaging. trash because of all the packaging. For sure. I think sustainability in general is probably a huge driver for a lot of people homesteading or starting this journey or growing food in general. And then you start gardening and then you realize that like how much energy and effort it takes to grow this food. And then just knowing that you're going to not waste it you have because you're in relationship with it, right? All of a sudden you've taken this like seed through and you've nurtured it and you've seen what can happen when you work with nature. So you're going to want to take care of nature. And then you're like, oh yeah, I am part of nature. I'm going to take care of myself. It's just kind of this cycle, I think. I know Stephanie's always very practical and has really good actionable steps. And I'm like, foo-foo and <laughs> like big level weirdo ideas. So, but I, I do, I think that zero food miles thing adds up so fast when you're able to just grow, or if you're going down the road to your farmer and getting corn, like we're going to get sweet corn in a couple of weeks, you know, big boxes of it. It just makes a difference and it tastes better. It's better for the environment. You have more nutritional value. Your kids know where it comes from. Or in my case, like the whole neighborhood of kids, because I like to get everybody over here to start sucking corn for me. Because I'm like, I've been doing that for four hours. Yeah. And then we have a party and we roast some corn and everybody's happy. So it's a good way to build community that way, too. Speaking of like preservation and using, how do you do you get you get all this corn and then do you cut it off the cob and do you freeze it? Do you have like full frozen corn for the year or what do you do? I prefer canning corn. So I like, I do pressure can some things. Um, I pressure can beans and corn because I don't really love the way beans and corn come out when I freeze them. I will say there's one exception. There is a book that was written by a Wisconsin homesteader, Whole Fed Homestead, Crystal. She's got a really fun book called Freeze Fresh. Just going to give a little shout out to her. She's got a couple recipes in there for corn that I froze and tried out because I'm like, I'm going to try this again. Maybe it was just me. You know, you got to keep trying too. Anyway, I liked it. So that was my, that's my, <laughs> my basis there. So keep trying the things that you thought you didn't like because maybe it was the corn. Maybe it was the season. Corn does a lot better if you freeze it in the milk stage. So like there's an early stage of sweet corn and a later stage of sweet corn. So the early stage is called the milk stage. It's got more sugar in it and there's a less car carbohydrate. Like the structure of it is different. So when you freeze it, it's not going to come out as tough. And so that's a big, big thing too. But I personally love to grab a can of corn that I pressure canned and you can add it to anything. It's just perfect. So that's what we have many jars of canned corn that keep us through the winter. And do you guys ever like, do you go all the way through? Like, do you get to the beginning of summer and you have stuff that you put up last summer? It takes you all the way. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. Especially pickles. Uh, Gotta yeah. make tons Bloody and tons Mary's. of pickles. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, Stephanie, what's your favorite thing to can or ferment? You, you like to ferment as well, right? Well, we do at least, I don't know, 40 to 50 quarts of pickles. That seems to be enough for the household, especially it's going to have to go up this year because my daughter's been eating like a quart a week, but she can help me now. Amazing. She's been helping me. So it's so many it, electrolytes. Good for her. <laughs> I personally, I eat so many pickled jalapenos. It's weird. People are like, why do you make so many? What do you put them on? And it's like, the list would be shorter if I told you what I didn't put them on. And then fermented food, we love sauerkraut. We have sauerkraut as like a veggie side to almost every dinner. We And you can add so many different things to create different flavors. So tons and tons of sauerkraut. Mm, now I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> I just did some dilly beans and they didn't even make it to, you know, when I thought they were fully done, I just kept tasting <laughs> them in there. Oh, these are good. So I just kept, <laughs> now they're all gone. Oh, so got to get some more beans. But, and I, I used all the, be I, my little plants, you know, I used all the, the first harvest and I, I got some, we, we belong to a CSA as well. So we have plenty of vegetables. So, you know, I'm ready to make more. And that's something I want to make a lot of and, and try to keep all the way through the winter. I also do a lot of fermented beets. And I call it fermented slaw. It is sauerkraut, but I put so many crazy things in it that I end up calling it fermented slaw. But same thing. We just keep that in the fridge. I have to mm. say that fermented corn is delicious and keeps nice and crunchy too. I have a corn relish recipe that will last months and months and months. Is that in small scale homesteading? It's not. <laughs> oh, you know what? I did put it in my third book. Whack Home Preserving. <laughs> it's in that one. It's a great recipe. <laughs> is Whack your preferred jar? For home canning, it is. I'm a cottage food producer, so I do sell some of my canned and fermented goods in the fall and winter. Those jars are too expensive to sell, so they are my preferred jars for canning are stuff that we'll keep here and eat. I think they're the cutest, so. I like that, you know, it's glass lid, glass jar, and then rubber ring. So because it was like, well, 13 years ago or so, 14 years ago when the BPA was in the ball sealant compound or whatever leaching into the food and it's out now, but what's in, I don't know, makes me a little like hesitant. So I do like the whack jars. Yeah. Sometimes the things they replace these other things with it just we just haven't discovered yet so it's it's nice to have like a, a material that you're confident in and I, I know that so tell us about your other books you, you have the wet book and what yeah else? so canned and fermented was my first one and every fruit or vegetable I have in there I have one or more recipes of how to water bath can it and how to ferment it because at the time when I had that idea people weren't really doing both as much as they are now they were canners or they were people that were fermenting and they didn't really see why you would do one or the other and I was trying to show people that they're both great methods for preserving food, but that the flavors are completely different and the benefits are different. And so that was the first one. And then we had a second edition release in 2020 that's been expanded with some extra recipes and new photos. And then I have WEC Small Batch Preserving and WEC Home Preserving, which the recipes still can be used with like your standard mason jars. But I collaborated with them to show people how to preserve with the jars. So there's chapters in for water bath canning for fermentation and then they vary the weck small batch how to infuse alcohol with fruits and peppers and it just has a whole infusion chapter and then weck home preserving <laughs> has 
a third chapter that's all made from scratch that doesn't require any canning or water, uh, fermentation. So it's like made from scratch, infused vinegars, dressings, how to infuse salts and sugars and, and stuff like that. Great. We will link all of those below. It sounds like a ton of information. And Michelle, is Small Scale Homesteading your first book? It is my first book. It's been really fun. Do you have ideas for others? Yeah, we had to cut out a what, what was it like a quarter of the content? 30,000 words. Oh, my gosh. What? <laughs> Why? It would just be too big. Well, I think we agreed to like a certain number, got that pushed out to another 15,000. That was the absolute max for the size of the book that mm. we were, you know, our publisher had agreed to for printing and whatnot. And then the reason it was so long is because we kind of wrote our own parts and then came together to build it together. And we're like, whoa, I didn't think it would be that long. So yeah, chances are we may <laughs> use that content into something else. Yeah. We definitely have a calendar companion, we're calling it, um, that we worked on and we released it as part of like pre-order content. So bonus content kind of for people who pre-ordered. We have like just a calendar of monthly ideas of planning and then a to-do list and eating local recipe, you know, what's in season. So we're going to, we're working on maybe expanding that for this winter to release for January something, but more of an online resource so that people feel like they've got something that can help them kind of stay on track month to month. Cool. Just a couple more questions really quickly before we wrap up. I'm interested in, for each of you, your greatest challenge in this work and your greatest joy. I think my greatest challenge is timing, like feeling like you have enough time, fitting it all in, being a good time manager for myself. But then on the opposite side, being able to slow down enough to actually enjoy it all. I think that's where I get that most joy. There's those moments where you're running around trying to, you know, harvest things before a rain comes or whatever. And then there's those moments too, where you're doing the same thing, but all of a sudden you're able to slow down just a little bit, take a breath and realize my kids are here doing this with me. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And you're all working towards this like common goal and knowing that you're instilling in that next generation, something that's going to help keep the planet around for the next generation. I think that that brings the most joy, you know, besides actually getting to eat all the really good food. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I really didn't know until Michelle said that, but she's right. I mean, we have so many cool opportunities and we could, we could be busy every single weekend doing classes and events. And we did a ton this spring and it was great. But then by June, we're like, oh my gosh, it's June. Where did this year go? You know, I mean, it was, it was great, but she's right. We have families. So I think that is a challenge because you don't want to let people down, but you also need to stay like mentally healthy (laughs) and not exhaust yourself. And that, that goes the same way with your yard, you know, overdoing it, feeling like you have to do too much. You you don't keep it like a healthy balance, but for sure, greatest joy. Number one would be my daughter knowing how to do everything that I know how to do at age 13. I mean, she's 20 years ahead of me. She can do all this stuff. I wasn't at that point until I was like 33 and, and also inspiring others to do more. You know, with the first three cookbooks, people are constantly posting the recipes that they've made. I love that. You know, I've helped people learn how to preserve food. That's life-changing. And now same thing's happening with small-scale homesteading. People are doing things that they've never done before. You know, many people tap their maple trees this spring because the book came out just in time for that, you know, because they thought they needed a bunch of trees.
streets to make it worthwhile. I thought the same thing. I lived here for seven years before I realized I just need that one tree in my backyard. (laughs) So yeah, definitely inspiring others is the greatest joy for me in this work. And what about your greatest challenge just to bring it down? (laughs) Well, like I said, like Michelle said, yeah, it's, it's hard because you want, you don't want to let anyone down, but you need to, you do need to take a step back. And that, that is hard. It is hard. I have guilt about it. I had to say no to many things I wanted to do this fall, but I, I'm, I can't, you know, my husband's got health issues and I just can't. Just don't want to get to a place where I've been before. And that's hard. I think as creative people who are resourceful, I mean, the possibilities are endless. You could totally spend all of your time doing really cool stuff. The trick is figuring out that you don't have to. And also back to the going to seed, I think letting things be for a while, even if that feels like that's absolutely not what you're supposed to do, or you might be missing out on something. But at the end of the day, maybe you're just opening another door that you didn't even know was there. And I want to circle back to the the raspberries. You mentioned the raspberries early in the conversation, Stephanie, and we have raspberries in right now. And there've been so many, it's just been such a wonderful yield this year. And we've been picking raspberries, picking raspberries, eating them and enjoying them and even giving some away. I catch myself feeling very stressed about getting all the raspberries. Then I just tell myself that we don't have to pick every single raspberry. The birds will enjoy some. The ones that don't get picked, you know, they'll decompose. They'll go back in the earth and it's okay. We're not wasting the raspberries if I'm not out there picking every single one of them. So it is a balance. Like enjoy it, but don't get so stressed out about stuff that it takes the enjoyment away. And that's, it's a, it's a really delicate balance. And, you know, I also like to make time in the evening just to go sit in the yard and enjoy the yard on a summer night, even though looking all around me, I see a hundred things that could be done or that supposedly need to be done, but maybe they don't need to be done. Maybe it's okay just to sit there and just sitting there is important too, absorbing the summer evening. So finding the balance in all of this slow living. Which brings us to the next question. (laughs) What does slow living mean to you? To me, it's just like living in the moment. It's hard to live in the moment, especially when there's just always so much to be done and kids play sports and there's school and this and that. But when, when you're in the garden or in the kitchen doing these things that take time and require patience, it's time for reflection and you get a lot of satisfaction and appreciation after you've preserved or grown something and reflecting on what you've made or created. And so I think that's part of what's really important about slow living. Yeah. So good, Stephanie. You mentioned, Mary, about picking all the raspberries. Here in Minnesota, we have are having a really good raspberry year too. I'm really curious, like if everybody's having a good raspberry year, what's going on? But so we've been picking a lot of raspberries, right? And they're not super fast to pick, especially because I have a jungle and I have to like be careful how I'm in and out of them so I don't get ripped up by all the, the thorns. But it's taking that time and then you're in that almost meditative state of like just picking one and picking, you know, and it's that moment where you're in that flow, I think, where time almost doesn't exist. So it's not even slow. It's just that you're not in time. And I think when you're able to get to that point, then you're so connected. Nothing else really matters. And to have even like 10 seconds of that every week or two is is so rejuvenating. It brings you back to why we're doing all this gardening and all this other stuff. And I think that that is magic. That really is. It's kind of like picking the raspberries is an experience in itself. 
even separate from having the raspberries to eat instead of just a means to an end. It's a, it's a exercise in presence. I, I completely agree. So thank you so much for that. So the podcast is called The Good Dirt. And we like ask everyone, what does the good dirt mean to you? I thought about this lion heart and I was just like, there's so many different answers that keep bubbling up to the top. So the easiest one for me to answer and make some kind of sense out of this is that initially when I heard the question, what does the good dirt mean to you? I came back to the answer of that's part of what's in my own company name, Forks in the Dirt. Forks in the Dirt is basically like kind of three prongs. It's growing your own, knowing your farmer and cooking real food. And so the articles I post there are all about that. And then I have a lot of updates on local food info. And it really is like about getting your hands into it, feeling that you're connected, letting that just soak into you. And then because it becomes part of you, then you're able to give that back out. And then again, it's kind of that cycle. So I think good dirt is being in it. My answer is not super different, but, you know, because I imagined planting stuff and pulling weeds and it gets all over my hands and in my fingernails. And I was thinking about the microorganisms in the soil and how the good bacteria on the vegetables help ferment the food I ferment and how a lot of the bacteria is in our gut biome and just how it's all connected. Good dirt. (laughs) I love (laughs) that. Love it. Yep. Good gut bacteria. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up here, what do you think it is that you most want listeners to understand about the work that you do? Or what do you want to leave them with about your book or anything specific? Yeah. What do you want people to understand about what you're up to? I want people, and I think we want people to understand that you can do more than you think and whatever that means. People limit themselves so much. And I think once they try, they realize, wow, this is a lot easier than I expected. Yeah, just do more with whatever space you have or you don't have because you can you can make you can make progress. Take that next step and realize how simple it is. Totally. I think it is about just moving that needle a little bit. Because if you start down this path and you realize, yep, I can do this. And then next year you add another thing because that first thing that you tried becomes just routine. Like the first time you make kombucha, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to mess it up. I don't know what I'm doing. The first time you plant a bean seed, you're like, I don't know what's happening. But it becomes more natural, more part of your routine. And then as you add things on, you are really shifting the trajectory of like society, of your family, for planet Earth. And I think that that, you know, that's what's going to save us all. <laughs> oh, it really, it really is. But a lot of people doing little steps is what's going to really kind of shift the tide here. Yes. Amen. We agree. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been so wonderful. I can't wait to get into everything. I think you've mentioned everything, but maybe just kind of say it one more time, each of you, where people can find you and your books and your writing and anything else that you want to draw people's attention to. Again, I'm Michelle Brun. Got to write this really fun book with Stephanie called Small Scale Homesteading. I also write a lot for the Northern Gardener Magazine, which is the Minnesota State Horticultural Society. They're a great resource for Northern gardeners specifically. And hort societies across the country are really fun to to engage with. And if you're interested and you don't have a great resource in your area, I would also just suggest your local extension office as a great way to get some really good info locally. 
And I'm Stephanie Thurow, and I'm on Instagram as Minnesota from scratch. And Michelle and I both are very active on Instagram, kind of posting what we're doing day to day. And then I have a website that's been under construction for far too long, but <laughs> it's still active. It's Minnesota from scratch.com. Awesome. Thank you all so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's nice to meet both of you. Yeah. It's so nice to meet you too. Tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. <laughs>